Hi, this is Ed Lockman, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey there, Ben Rock. How are you? I'm doing delightful. How are you doing, Ilya? Yeah, I'm doing okay. Friedman. <laughs> thanks. And thanks for giving everyone my, my full name there so they can they can track yeah. me down. Uh, <laughs> hey, uh, who is on the podcast today? Ed Lockman, who shot the amazing movie El Conde. And I know that uh, I seem to recall you and I talking about the uh, Academy nominations and we were like, El Conde, what's that? <laughs> like, it really didn't get a huge push in America. Mm. And it's on Netflix right now. If you have Netflix and you're listening to the sound of my voice, you can go watch El Conde right now. It is wonderful, and it looks amazing. I mean, like black and white. It was filmed with a black and white airy. I was sitting there watching it with my wife, Alicia, and I just kept like throughout the whole movie, just like saying out loud, like, I love this so much. It's it, I've never seen uh, a horror movie and it's a horror comedy kind of um, that is using horror as political allegory, straight up political allegory. So it's about Pinochet, the despot who ran Chile, Chile. And basically, it's cast him as a vampire. He's a vampire. He's a straight up <laughs> vampire and uh, living on the blood of his people. It just it, it looks amazing. It's sumptuous. It's funny. It's got these amazing flying scenes in it. Like, I, I can't say enough good about it. And uh, Ed is someone who we've been trying to get on the show for some time. We had a near miss uh, like two years ago uh, where I even went to the screening of uh, of the Velvet Underground, the documentary that he shot for Todd Haynes and then for whatever reason schedules didn't line up or whatever we didn't end up talking to Ed then but I'm really glad I got to talk to him now and I think that especially if you're very technical he gets into some very interesting technical weeds and kind of talks about a system he uses for lighting in the digital world and schools me a little bit about IRE and using IRE to measure the brightness of your image. Nice. Uh, which anyone who's used, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a waveform monitor. Knows uh, IRE, yeah. Is, 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 yeah, that's what you're looking at. And I didn't even realize what IRE stood for, but I'm going to let him tell you in the interview. Well, we'll get to that interview in just a few minutes. What is our close focus this week? And now, close, close focus. focus. Well, our close focus is kind of a potpourri, kind of a, a roundup. There's a, a bunch of different things uh, going on. You and I discussed briefly, should we talk about the Grammys? Not really, you know, like not really something that, that we follow that closely. And I do think we have given uh, Taylor Swift more than enough airtime on this podcast because <laughs> she is yeah. awesome. You know, there's plenty of stuff you could talk about from the Grammys. But actually, Ilya, why don't you take the lead? Because you had some stuff you wanted to talk about. Okay, well, Sundance also just wrapped up, and one of the filmmakers at Sundance is having, like, the best week ever. Uh, his movie called... Is he Dean Taylor Swift? Is it? It's Taylor Swift, isn't it? It's not. It's someone named Sean Wang. Uh, or it could actually be pronounced Wong. It's W-A-N-G. I'm not sure which way he pronounces it, so I, I apologize if, it, if it's Wong and I pronounced it Wang. But he's got a movie called Didi, which sold, which had a sold-out festival run. And mm -hmm. I believe it also, yes, it won the Audience Award. So that's 
pretty much guaranteed that if you win an audience award uh, or a, a jury award at Sundance, you're going to get some sort of distribution. It's going to get seen. But in yeah. addition to winning the audience award at Sundance, he also made a short documentary that got nominated for an Oscar. So, hmm. you know, not too bad. 29 years old. He's got a, a short documentary called, and again, I don't know the exact pronunciation, so I'm, I'm, I'm reading this here. Hopefully I get it right. Nai Nai and Wai Po, which it sounds like is a story about his grandmothers. And uh, it's a short documentary, and it's based on another little video postcard he sort of made with his grandmothers, uh, you know, uh, years ago. And I guess the uh, intention was only to make something that they would like be happy with inside the family. But of course, it got put out into the world and had a festival run and now nominated for an Oscar. And it sounds like you can watch it right now on Disney Plus. I haven't even seen it. I just read oh, about wow. the whole thing. So after this, I'm going to have to go watch. I got to go watch the, uh, the this short, which is, uh, you know, Oscar nominated. So congratulations to, to Sean Wang. I hope that uh, I hope that all of his weeks are as good as this one. This is a pretty good week for him. Well, so. yeah. There's a great uh, video I found where uh, Tom Hanks was kind of talking about this too shall pass. Having the best week of your life, this too shall pass. <laughs> Having the worst week of your life, this too shall pass. So, you know. Uh, it was also a pretty good week for us. We hit number six in the UK for uh, oh, iTunes. By the way, yeah. uh, Alana, our producer, wanted me uh, to remind us both to point out this is our 10th anniversary of this podcast. We have been doing this podcast for a freaking decade. Yeah, that's right. I think it's 10 years with this episode, like this episode yeah. going live. It's, it's been exactly 10 years. So uh, 10 years and almost 2 million downloads. Yeah, it's, it's oh, there's, a, there's a, a lot of miles that's <laughs> you know, been going on. We Who were knew? we were much younger people back when we started this this crazy enterprise. T 10 years younger, in fact. 10 years younger, a decade younger. Well, and it came out 10 years ago. But as I pointed out to Alana, it came out in February. But we recorded it in April because our first episode with uh, featuring uh, the wonderful Jason Wingrove, uh, we were recorded at NAB. That's right. Got, re got recorded in April. That's how long it took me to edit the freaking episode. <laughs> well, we were still finding our footing then, so it took a little while. Yeah, but uh, but true. yes, we, we and, and we didn't have Ben Katz. We, we did not. We had a couple of other editors who came in who definitely helped. But uh, Ben Katz, Mike is Wilbanks, had, Mike Wilbanks is uh, Ben has been with us the longest and I think has now cut more episodes than anybody else. So that's for that's, sure. That's that's super cool. But yeah, we hit a milestone also in the UK, like the UK. We, we sort of, you know, uh, fluctuate a little in sort of like the top 20, top 50, top 100. But we were at number six this week, which I thought was was pretty cool. We were number 15 in the US. It's a little bit more competitive here, but still, that's also quite good for us. Uh, and we continue to be uh, seeming to win some friends and, and influencing people. So, so not so bad. We're we're making it happen. Let's see. Was there something else that that we also talked well, about? Well, there is one thing that I would like to bring yeah. up, and it's it's a story that I've been kind of checking in on as as it goes along periodically. But Strata, which is Michael Cioni's new company, launched their private beta hmm. last week, and they had a private beta uh, event, which you can actually uh, watch on YouTube where they go over all the stuff that Strata does. And it is some pretty amazing science fiction stuff. It's it's stuff that will speed up your workflow. And, you know, Michael Cioni, when you introduced him to me, God knows how many years ago, he was 
obsessed with workflow then and you know the whole point of strata is to kind of leverage ai a, lo- a lot of ai to do heavy lifting of stupid repetitive tasks to help you be faster and more creative in the actual edit and post-production of, of your film and uh, of, of any project so i would say if anyone's listening to the sound of my voice and you think strata might be right for you you can actually uh, go to them and email them and ask to be part of the private beta and you know it's a private beta they're kind of test driving it. it they're going to be bumps in the road but like if i had a project right now that was going right now i would absolutely be reaching out to uh strata and michael to see if i could be a part of it and, and i know that they're looking for people and i'll also let everyone know when the public beta is happening but i think it's a really cool idea that michael's doing and like other projects that he's been a part of light iron frame io like i just i think michael's a brilliant guy and uh, and and I, I love watching his videos they're freaking inspirational yeah, and, and that's the other sort of fun thing, too. Strata's sort of got a YouTube and Instagram series going right now, too, sort of like charting the whole trajectory and the the birth, you know, very sort of like a startup podcast where you get yeah. to, you know, see the whole process of them. It's like that, but company. also like, you know, he shows he has some episodes that are just purely technical. And I think I talked about one of them on here, which was the episode where he tried to get the best looking image out of an iPhone 15. And it's shockingly good. Like, I'm not saying, you know, chuck your professional level glass and, and chuck that and go shoot it on an iPhone. But uh, what I am saying, and I think what Michael is trying to show is like, if that's what you got, you can get good results out of it. If that's all you have, if that's the best you can do. Uh, and, and he's also kind of looking at it and saying, where's the iPhone headed? He's definitely saying that. He's... um always been uh you know a couple steps ahead of everybody sort of out there yeah. as far as uh workflows and plans and and everything and so uh it won't be boring to watch what he does next yeah, uh, yeah. all right so ben i think we should get to the interview with ed lockman here he is the cinematography podcast interview well, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're one of the people we've been wanting to bring on for a long, long time. Uh, a couple of years ago, we were going to have you on for the Velvet Underground. And when we saw the Oscar nominees for Best Cinematography, which were always like, who's it going to be? And we're betting. And it was El Conde. Both Ilya, my co-host, and I were like, uh, you know, that wasn't a movie that was heavily promoted in America. We were like, what's El Conde? What, what is it? Of course, we saw your name and we knew it had to be great. And I'm going to be shouting to the from the rooftops to people to check this movie out. It is so beautiful, so wonderful, so funny. And it's one of those movies that watching it the whole way, I had no idea what where it was going in, in the best way. Like, it was such a great trip. But like, if we could just kind of start by telling me, how did you get involved with El Conde? Again, just s- such a beautiful, brilliant piece yeah. of work well i i've been following pablo's career you know, almost well i guess tony monero came here about 14 years ago and so we met way back when and here was a filmmaker that i knew nothing about but that his films all dealt with the 70s and the period under pinochet and how he told the story in a kind of a social political context but always found the visual metaphor for telling the story. So anyway, we became friends and he knew my work. And then he said, one day I'm going to bring you to Chile. And I think Pablo studied cinematographer because, you know, he likes to operate the camera. He's he's very Mm. good with the camera. But conceptually, he's brilliant about how he sets up the camera to tell the story. 
So we did this one commercial in LA, and I'm sure that was a way of checking out how you know open we would be with each other. And I always think of a cinematographer like another actor. You know, we give a certain kind of performance, and they say a cinematographer and a director is a marriage. But I always like to think of it as a dance partner.、Hmm. You know, you you hear the same music, but Do your steps complement each other? And I certainly feel I have that relationship with Pablo. But anyway, he initially knew he wanted to shoot this film in black and white, and he got the approval from Netflix Latin America to approve that he would shoot the film in black and white.、Mm-hmm. Because traditionally, what happens more and more is. If you're going to shoot in black and white, you're kind of forced to shoot with either color negative or color, and then transpose that into a monochromatic image. But what I knew and what I've discovered is, yes, you can do that, but it's more effective if you can originate in the black and white. Oh, so you you filmed it in black and white. So the approval wasn't to make a black and white film. The approval was to film it only in black and white. So you、exactly. you, you could you couldn't you couldn't back it off later. Right. So you're right. You couldn't second guess yourself. For certain markets, you could show it in color, and other markets you could show in black and white. So once that was established to me, then I just went head on about how can I create images because I'm referencing. The tradition of black and white through these gothic metaphors of the vampire film. So, number one was that Aeroflex, through a friend of mine in Germany, Marco Messinger, who is a cinematographer and an optical and electric、uh, engineer, talked to Ari, and they said they had been thinking about. They had it in an EXT, a monochromatic, but it wouldn't meet. Netflix requirement of a 4K sensor, and they had it in a 65 millimeter camera, but they didn't have it in the LF. And we wanted to shoot with the mini LF because we were using a 15 foot techno crane, and the head that we had, a Ronin, only could take certain weight. So we had to go with the LF, and the LF we could only go with is either a color LF. But they actually, within two months, came up with a monochromatic sensor for us, and I didn't think it would happen because they were in the process of coming out with a new Alexa 35. So I thought they'll never have the time to do this. But they were interested, and they had thought about making a, a monochromatic sensor for that camera. So I was kind of the impetus and excuse to get it done. Well, and that was going to be one of my questions: was what was the what's the advantage of a digital monochrome camera over shooting well, on a color camera and then sucking the color I, out? Well, what I always discovered was, and I discovered this back in the when I was shooting color film, and then I was shooting a film in black and white. Let's say like I'm not there, you know, and I did yeah, tap. beautiful film. The exposure latitude is different. The grain structure is different, and I can then use filters. I can use black and white filters on a monochromatic camera that wouldn't work the same way if I used them on a color camera.、Hmm. Now, 
wherever there was blue screen for the night flying, we did use a color camera because I had to use a color camera for the blue screen. So anyway, they came up with this sensor and they said, we'll send you the camera, you do the test. So I had about two weeks to do the test. And that's where I discovered that I was actually gaining exposure. Working with a black and white sensor and knowing you are, then you can start to tailor what the wardrobe is going to look like, what uh, the contrast in the set would look like with different color, even the blood. Pablo brought up this point about, you know, red is giving us the, the deepest, darkest blacks. But what happens if we played with green or yellow or blue? And we actually ended up with blue for the blood. Interesting. And it gave it, it was dark, but it gave it a luminosity that the red didn't. Huh. So against certain colors with the blue blood, or the blue facsimile of blood, created a different look for the blood. So that was really interesting, that even the blood could look different. Because I mean, you always think about like Hitchcock, you always hear about like on Psycho or whatever that they use chocolate syrup for the blood so that it would really. I, yeah, I didn't know that. But anyway, that, that that's another. Well, and El Conde seems like a, while I was watching it, kind of paying attention to what lenses you're using, especially in like dialogue scenes, it felt like a lot of it was on the wider end, you know, like the dialogue tend to play uh, between the actors, not not dirty over the shoulder shots, but it was inside the conversation kind of stuff. Right. It was, I would say, uh, 28, 24, 35 was probably our, the most used lenses that we used. I added 21. That was the widest lens for the medium format that we used. But that was the language you're right, because it was the family, it was group shots. And so, you know, with a wide format that you're shooting with a large format, that felt right for the environment. Well, and can I ask you a question? Like, I, 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 I truly don't know the answer to this, but I always think of uh, comedies as being wi- tending to towards wider angles. It's not to say that they're all wide angle, but they tend towards wide angles. And this this movie is horrifying, but it's hilariously funny. And wow. I wonder if uh, you know they're not, it's not wide to the point of distortion or anything like that. But I wonder if there's something unconscious in us as viewers when we're watching something shot on a wider angle lens that kind of gives us permission to find it funny somehow i don't know if that makes any sense i know you can tell me i'm full of it that's uh you know that's fine you know it's why comedies are bright i don't know why you know that that i would rather go the other way i like to make comedies dark but i it's (laughs) i know because i want to go over what the elements were that created the look of the film all right so the monochromatic sensor it was the lenses the uh baltar lenses the original baltar glass it was the and then my el zone system which stands for exposure latitude system so the el zone system is something i've been touting for about the last 10 years that camera manufacturers instituted into their software and the reason why is when i discovered and i'll ask you do you know what ire stands for we base our false color in these which i call false color false exposure yeah but do you even know what ire stands for i I, I know i know it's about brightness but i don't know what it stands for no it stands for 
the international radio engineers. Mm. Why are we basing our exposure on radio signals? And well, that the, explains why I didn't know what it was. <laughs> yeah, right. When they designed the electronic media to create our digital cameras, they didn't think about the analog world. So when I did research, because I was always frustrated on the set, when I would go to the DIT, and I, I know people are going to say, well, I don't use the light meter, I use the monitor. Fine. But why, when I read with my light meter and I say it's F4, I go to the DIT and he says, no, it's 5.6 or 6.3. So that used to drive me crazy why there wasn't a consistency in understanding exposure between their language and my understanding of the photographic media. What are they so, basing the this, this stop on? They're basing it on IRE? Yeah, yes. And this is the basic, basic problem. It's so simple that when now people are involved with instituting the EL zone system, they all go, I can't believe nobody thought of this. I went back to Ensel Adams where I, I learned photography. So the thing is, once I base it on 18% gray, the way Ensel Adams based his zone system, where you could place exposure from 18%. So he could, he did it in 10 stops where he could evaluate the highlight to white where you burn out no information to the shadow black of, of zero where you have no information. So I did the same thing digitally. Once you could figure out, I discovered, and I did this with Panasonic first, where 18% gray is for that sensor, like Sony sensor is different than Aries sensor, different than red sensor, let's say. But yeah. they have a place where they place 18% gray. So once the camera manufacturers could interpret where the 18% gray is, then my zone system fits in exactly right. And you can then determine how much detail you want in the highlight and how much detail you want in the shadow area and everything will fall in. And then you can play, you can be consistent and light the same set or different sets with the same exposure latitude. And if I'm making this confusing, you can just go to elzonesystem.com. I have a website that explains all the nomenclature. I, I, I totally will. But like for someone who wanted to practically use this, because it sounds like this is something that if you you could be shooting at any budget level with almost any camera, and this is something you could use, right. right? Well, I've been talking to camera manufacturers for years, but the problem has been they don't want to change because... They've already instituted the IRE system for their false color, which is different for every camera manufacturer, which makes no sense either. Why everybody's IRE is different. If you see what the IRE represents for each camera manufacturer, that doesn't make sense either. My system, you can use on any camera, and it's the same. Because 18% gray is 18% gray, and then you can figure your one stop over, one stop under from 18% gray.
the film is not a traditional romantic perception of the vampire mm. film, but one that looks at how metaphorically and literally the society was drained of its blood socially politically i know that's what's so wonderful about it i don't i mean like i'm a big horror fan and i've seen every vampire movie i could get my hands on but like uh like i was like i've never seen it the only thing i can even think of that comes close to this was a wes craven movie called the serpent and the rainbow which was sort of about the subjugation of people and the despot and that keeps their souls in jars you know and 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 i was like you know like finding sort of like the perfect metaphor for despotism and authoritarianism and i mean it makes it super clear in the beginning and i don't want to ruin the end for anyone but like the end really brings that so home too Uh yeah well you know that's that's what he created you know this allegory of uh how we're seduced by uh, yielding to fascism. And it isn't just in Chile. It's like the last 50 years, we're facing that all over, you know, all over the yeah. world. That's that's why I think the film has something to say, you know, if you can get past. I mean, some people, the gore is too much for them. But if, if the human suffering... Oh, it's really, not that gory. I know. <laughs> Napoleon is gorier. I'm not. I wasn't too worried about the gore. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I mean, to me, like again, as a horror fan, that's why genre works sometimes. Is that it can take an idea that's complicated and philosophical or political or whatever, and it overly intellectualize it. And genre, be it horror or gangster movies or science fiction, can like make it very palatable to an audience because also it gives you this like pulpy fun story to hang hang your hat on and it pulls you all the way through it's it's so well done it's like you can feel the texture in this movie like the couches and the brick and the floor and you were talking about how you took inspiration from like a lot of old vampire movies but also you talked about ansel adams and when i was watching it that was the photographer whose work it most looked like to me it it felt like ansel i mean obviously he mostly did landscapes but it there was something about the texture and the quality of it that felt ansel adams ish and also i don't know if, if you would have referenced this at all but i kept thinking about Eraserhead, uh shot by frederick elms and the the way black and white was used and even in a sense and i know this isn't cinematography necessarily but even the way sound was used against the black and white like the the wind blowing and stuff when you're in in an interior place where you wouldn't really hear it that loudly but you know like it creates such a striking feeling were there specific people like that who you took any inspiration from or was you know were like old classic vampire movies more the jumping off point yeah i i love fred's work i don't think i i did in fact i didn't even think about looking at that film um Check it out again. I mean, like, I, I feel like you know, there's, there's a kinship there. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I mean, I certainly thought about, you know, Bruno Dubonnel made a film, you know, Macbeth, and that was a different use of black and white, but I, it was stunning. So I did think... Oh, are that a is of, a beautiful film, yeah. Yeah, I, there's a lot of films recently in the last few years that have used black and white. Or, you know, Roger did such an incredible job with, the man who wasn't there. But those yeah. were all different. You know, he used slow sound stock for the printing. They they were a different look. My look is much dirtier. You know, I, mm. I I didn't want to aestheticize that world. I wanted the world to still have a little grit to it, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
maybe that's why it referenced more the older black and white films you know let's say like nosferatu or uh vampire or sunrise or so like silent films yeah yeah i would i was even though we didn't do the format with you know one three three i was more interested in the texture of that world and we use smoke and the texture of that world because i we're dealing with the genre of the vampire you know gothic horror film so i wanted to be truer to that language than a more modern interpretation of black and white you know mm. No, that's you know, really interesting. You know, like her last, I always loved the last picture show by Surtees. You know, you think about great. I'll tell you a film that that I really love the black and white. Uh, Lenny. Wow. Oh, wow. A, yeah. Yeah. I don't think that cinematographer ever shot another film as beautiful as that. What What was he was? Uh, Bruce Surtees. Yes. It's the camera is so free in that film. The way the exposure, it's its a wonderful film, the reference to color, black and white. I just love the way that vi visually that story is told. That's all really, I mean, it's just amazing stuff. I also wanted to ask you about the flying scenes. You already you already told me that uh, that you did some of them with blue screen. Were they all done with blue screen? Like when, when the nun takes flight and yeah, she's no, like flying over the water, I see her reflection. Oh, no, no 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 this is the night when he's flying is blue screen mm -hmm. but all the day stuff at the end was done in camera and it was done on a 120 foot crane on wires that paula the actress does her own stunts there are some shots that the that the double stunt but for the most part she was a she studied ballet and she wanted to do those scenes so she was actually on wire and made all those movements and the grip held the ronin head and those were in flight shots in where we obviously in post took the wires out and that's why they have such a spirit to them that that was really in camera. That's amazing. And it was this incredible group. They were uh, trapeze artists and circus performers that had a company out of Colombia uh, who came to Chile to Patagonia and set that up. Yeah, I that stuff. Like when those scenes came up, I was like, "This is like when you have a dream that you're flying, what it feels like." And I don't, I, I, I very rarely, except for maybe like. The Big Lebowski, which was a much shorter scene of flying, do I feel like a movie captures what it feels like in your imagination to be able to fly? It was mm -hmm. such a such a, a glorious sequence. It, it really was amazing. Yeah, that that's that was very special. Yeah, and I was wondering. It, it looked like it was done practically, but when you see stuff, it, I mean, when you shoot stuff in the volume, it really all depends. Some sometimes it totally sells, sometimes it doesn't sell at all, and uh, and so it's sometimes this hard to tell. Fact, and, this was. Patagonian landscape freezing at that point, <laughs> you know. Okay, cool. So before I let you go, we want to encourage anyone and everyone to go check out El Conde on Netflix, which is out right now. But is there a place where people can find your work online? Do you have an Instagram or uh, any kind of social media presence people can check out? 
Mm, not really. <laughs> you you have like four more usable hours in the day than I do. So congratulations uh, for that. I don't know. Just look me up and it tells you what films I've shot. That yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and some of your favorites. One of my all-time favorite Steven Soderbergh movies, The Limey, which I have watched dozens of times. Like, uh, just amazing work. But, like, there's so many. There's Desperately Seeking Susan. There's Far From Heaven, which is the last one you were nominated for. So, and I, I want to remind everyone, you are nominated for Best Cinematographer for this. So, uh, cross, crossing our fingers for you. And, and best of luck uh, next month at the Oscars. Well, the nomination is great enough, especially with the... The other nominees whose work I all respect. I know it's like really hard to look at that and be like, you know, like there's not one person or one film on there that I'm like, nah, they all look great. You're all cinematographers. I don't think any of the people nominated have won before, but you've well, all been nominated before. Right, or right. most of you have been nominated before, I think. Well, I and, think everybody has. Uh, so thank you very much for coming on the show and we'll be uh, crossing our fingers for you on Oscar night. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so that was Ed Lockman. Ed, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great. Thank it was you. Great having you. Yeah. And he talks about this a lot in the interviews, uh, but I just kind of want to, we should probably put it in the show notes. And if not, just check out his website, elzonesystem.com. I know it would make Ed very happy, but it's basically Ed teaching you how to how to get better control of your digital camera. And so to think more logarithmically and to kind of understand, you know, like what you're going for with exposure etc etc and definitely go check out el conde i just that movie really surprised the hell out of me it's such a great movie awesome well hey ben you'll never guess what time it is uh what time is it it is time to is, pay the bills is it, is it time to <laughs> sacrifice the sheep whoa you just got really dark here like sorry like, you know i guess i, I, sh I, I shouldn't I, be surprised no got dark buddy that's where i started <laughs> you started dark uh yeah. we gotta thank one of our sponsors our fine sponsor airy makers of all kinds of incredible professional high-end cinema equipment they of course came out with a camera last year called the alexa 35 it's already uh, being widely adopted all across the industry all different levels of the industry love the airy 35 and one of the unique features it has is downloadable textures, sort of like grain or noise that you can insert into the camera to give your footage a very stylized look. And they said from the beginning that they would make new textures available as time goes by, and they're holding true to that promise. They have two new textures that you can download right now and install in your Alexa 35. One of them is called Super Nostalgia, and uh, the other is called Custom Extreme Nostalgia. And mm. both of them are a lot of look. They are super grainy, super noisy, lots and lots and lots of like visible effects. And for what you're doing, you might need something like that. So if you need a lot of look and you have an Alexa 35, uh, Aerie has it available at Aerie.com forward slash textures. We'll put a link in the show notes and uh, check it out. It's free. If you want to make your really fancy, really nice, super high-end camera look like something something that you know uh, was probably from a, a bygone era these new textures can do that for you and you don't have to give up all the things like your incredible dynamic range and all the other you know wonderful creature comforts you get with a new camera but you do get to completely change the actual physicality graininess texture of the images that's fun yeah pretty fun and now short ends so so ben it is our short end time of the show it's the time when we talk about our personal obsessions what we're into it could be anything what are, what do you have going on this week what are you obsessing about okay i have kind of a personal story to tell 
Ooh, personal story. Strap in. <laughs> um, probably our listeners aren't aware of this, but anyone who knows me at all probably has heard at one point or another, my father used to be Bozo the Clown. And Bozo the Clown <laughs> was a franchised character all over the country. And it was uh, before I was born in the 1960s and into the early 1970s. In fact, the reason I am from Orlando, Florida, is that his show was in Miami and it got canceled and he got picked up in Orlando. So that is why I'm from Orlando, Florida. So one day, and this is a long time ago, I was goofing around on IMDb and I'm like, I wonder if his Bozo show is on IMDb. And I type in his name, Alan Rock. No, it is not. But Alan Rock is on IMDb, and he's in a movie called Jimmy the Boy Wonder, directed by gore master extreme Herschel Gordon Lewis. And I'm like, can't be. Can't be my dad. Right? I, I look it up, and it was filmed in South Florida, uh, I think in Coral Gables. And I'm like, okay, that I don't really know well enough to know, but I know that's near Miami. And I'm like, okay, maybe it's him. So I look it up on YouTube, and the first thumbnail that pops up is my father wearing an Indian headdress painted green, and it's like him in his mid-30s, younger his, than I ever knew him. Wait a second. His skin is painted green, or the headdress is painted green? He, his skin is painted green. Okay, so he's, he, a, he's, he's green. He's a green Indian. Whoa. Um, and uh, the movie was made in 1965, and uh, yeah, and you can find this on YouTube. Click on it and watch it. And I found this long enough ago, by the way, that my sister tried to track down any information from Herschel Gordon Lewis himself. He had, like, basically in one sentence, he was like, that was something I was hired to do. I don't really know anything about it. Like, yeah. I don't remember it, whatever. Uh, and then Herschel Gordon Lewis passed away, I believe, in uh, 2014. And I don't know why. I cannot tell you why. But my interest in it was sort of reignited over the last couple of weeks. Uh, part of it is that that clip was taken down and then brought back up. So it's my father is shirtless in an Indian headdress, and uh, it's very culturally insensitive. Uh, you know, today there'd be picket lines around around the corner, and uh, it rains jelly beans on him. And there's a bean song, and that's really his whole sequence in the, in this movie, which is I, I just want to say not a good movie. I'm not endorsing Jimmy the Boy Wonder. That is not my short end. Um, but what I, I, for some reason I was like, is you're, anyone... not, you're not endorsing it. Okay. No, no, no. It's okay. not a good movie. Uh, you can get it from something weird video and they put out like super weird ass stuff. I mean, like if you like extreme kitsch, like sixties kitsch, like Santa Claus uh, versus the Martians kind of stuff, this is in that range. And by the way, when I saw this, I called my dad and I was like, what the hell? Uh, you know, like I was going to film school. You never mentioned that you were in a movie, much less one by Herschel Gordon Lewis. And he's like, that is me. But I have no recollection of working on this. I don't remember doing that. I have no memory of doing it at all. So I was like, who is alive who might be able to answer any questions? And I looked. Uh, I don't know why it didn't occur to me before to do this, but I looked up who is the DP. And the DP is a guy named Andy Romanoff, who you know. It's true. I uh, I made contact with him. We talked on the phone. He had more information than Herschel Gordon Lewis had and more than my dad had in that he had any information at all. But he remembers shooting those kinds of movies. He's like, we probably made it in a week. Uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis did not allow second takes. He said if, if somebody messed up a line, they would move the camera and get a different angle. And so his actors would intentionally flub their lines so they could get a close up. Um, he said that uh, he was not allowed to set up lights. It all had to be done with reflectors. And the, the big reveal is he said he'll come on on the show. So I'm going to have Andy Romanoff come on and he's going to talk about a lot of that stuff. But also he went from doing that stuff to being a high end 
remote head operator like uh, in the early days of remote head so he was a remote head operator on steven spielberg's 1941 like he did a bunch of that stuff i think he he will talk more about this uh and he actually released a book last summer called stories i've been meaning to tell you he sent me the ebook version of it and we can talk about the book and i think a lot of it are his memoirs but it was like one of the most exciting conversations i've had not just because he you know he filmed this thing that my father was in years before I was even born, but uh, he's someone who's got an interesting vantage point on film history for the last, whatever, 50 some odd years. You know, once we get through Oscar season, it'll be nice to talk about Herschel Gordon Lewis, (laughs) because, you know, for people who aren't familiar with Herschel Gordon Lewis, uh, check out The Wizard of Gore. That's where I'd start. Talk to Quentin Tarantino, talk to Robert Rodriguez, talk to any contemporary filmmaker who kind of jumps into genre. Look at everything Troma has ever made. Uh, I feel like it all traces right back to Herschel Gordon Lewis, and uh, it'll be great to talk to him about that. All right. Well, I'm going to go on the record here, and I'll certainly go on the record, too, when when Andy comes on the show. But I used to work at a video store when I was in college. And whenever someone would come to the store and ask, what's the worst movie in here? we would always point to Jimmy the Boy Wonder every single yeah. time. And I tried to watch Jimmy the Boy Wonder in 1993. I made it in about seven or eight minutes and I had to turn the thing off. <laughs> you didn't get to see my, my shirtless dad. So. I did not, no. I, I Seven or eight minutes is about as, as much as I could take of that movie. That movie is truly rancid. It is not offensive to my sensibilities, except that it is just absolutely awful and i i really questioned what i was doing with my life and i needed that that seven or eight minutes back to devote to something better than jimmy the boy wonder so i'm glad that your dad is in it i am glad that you have this this personal affinity i'm glad that you're going to uh be able to you know uh add some extra richness and texture and character but think about to it the too by the way like, like somebody who starts there ends up doing like remote head work for steven spielberg like 10 years later 12 years later all I'm all I'm saying is that it's so much better that your dad is in the worst movie of all time than like you know like the third worst movie of all time. I think it's actually it's do really. I, do you think, you think it's worse than like Plan Nine from Outer Space? I, was get say, Kath- I, I think let's get every, Catherine Coldiron on this. Let's bring her back. I actually think every Ed Wood film I've seen is better than uh, better than Jimmy the wow. Wonder. So I know that's that's really saying something. So that's pretty harsh. I, I have not watched a lot of Troma. I, I, Toxic Avenger is the only one I could make it through. So I don't know if Troma made stuff that's worse. But yeah, it's uh, well Troma just like. Uh, you know, Lloyd Kaufman and Troma kind of have a brand that that kind of goes for an audacious, often gross-out aesthetic that I think uh, derives straight from Herschel Gordon Lewis and its exploitation. But I, at a certain point, I feel like a lot of people kind of create like a little fiefdom around, like a culture around their films. You know, like you could say the same thing about Kevin Smith. Mm, sure. All right. So, uh, Ilya, what is your pet obsession of this week? Well, for this week, my obsession is Slow Horses. I'm coming to this very, very late. It's an Apple TV Plus series, and it stars Gary Oldman and Kristen Scott Thomas. And it was referred to me by actually a friend of the show, friend of Hot Red Cameras named Jim Mathers. Jim Mathers runs a group called the Digital Cinema Society. I was talking to him recently, and he mentioned Slow Horses. I had never heard—I was really, like, totally off my radar. It's been out for a little while. I think Mm -hmm. multiple seasons in— and holy crap, I haven't been able to binge it. I can only watch a, a certain amount before it's time for me to go to sleep. But 
uh, the last three I know, nights. I know those feels. <laughs> the last three nights I've been watching it and it kind of feels like a guilty pleasure. It's sort of like a spy thriller caper sort of thing. But at the same time, uh, Gary Oldman is so great. He is Always. so, so, so great in this. And he just plays this foul mouth curmudgeon sort of like, you know, washed up spy. And it's just so much fun to watch. It's so much fun. And as it goes on, you realize he's not exactly that washed up. And, you know, he's totally foul mouthed and he acts like, you know, a real hard ass. But he's got sort of like this endearing undercurrent and stuff. And that part of like his uh, his charisma is how abrasive he is to people. And uh, it's really, really fun. So if you haven't seen Slow Horses on Apple TV Plus, if you have been thinking, eh, maybe I'll try that free trial and watch catch up on those Apple TV Plus things, catch up on Silo, catch up on the Beastie Boys documentary, Add slow horses to that. Really enjoying it. Looking forward to trying. I can't quite binge it, but uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing where it goes next. It's been a lot of fun. It sort of has three days of the Condor sort of vibe going back oh, cool. to the original. The original. So that's yeah. That's that's. Uh, I'm I'm liking it a lot. It's been good. All right. So Ben, we gotta thank some people for making this show possible. Who should we thank? Oh my God, uh, Alana Cody is working so hard. I can't believe, I mean, like the Ed Lockman interview today was amazing. And then we have another, like Ed Lockman was one of those white whale kind of DPs we've been talking about getting on here for a long time. And we have yet another one of those coming up on Wednesday. I don't want to say who because I'll jinx myself and then, uh, you know, uh, we won't be able to do it for some reason. But uh, on Wednesday, we've got one of the big another. ones we've been wanting to do for yeah. a long time. And she's really just kicking so much ass getting us uh, lining up, especially a lot of these Oscar nominees, which, you know, like it's hard to get in there and uh, get get their time right now. But but she's doing it. So thank you, Alana. We should also thank Ben Katz. Uh, my camera just made Ben Katz's life uh, hopefully not horrible, but slightly more complicated as he gets into edit the raps tomorrow. And last but never least, we should thank Kazal Atrakshi. We still have to go through all that music that he gave us and choose some new tracks. Uh, but Kay's created every scrap of music that you heard in the entire podcast. Go to his website, musicbykays.com. Hire him to score your next film. How would, how would you like to have an original score for your next film by an amazing composer who's extremely talented? Or hire him to color correct your next film. Or hire him to do visual effects for your next film. Or... <laughs> Freaking hire Kays to direct your next film. He does all those things. I, I I don't know how he has the time. It's pretty impressive. Ben, where can people find you? They want to reach out to you. Bettenrock.com. It's the best place to find me. Uh, all kinds of information about uh, who I am and what I do can be found there. How about yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? You can find me at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com, or you can hit me up on the Instagram, which is at Ilya Friedman. Do it up. So, Ben, I think that's just about going to do it for us this week. Take us out. Thanks for tuning in. (laughs) Good job. Thank you. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.